told Timothy to fight the good fight, it raises a lot of questions for me. It raises this question, what kind of fight? Because if Jesus won the victory, who am I fighting? If the battle is over, if the war is over, which Paul wrote about extensively, what is this fight against? Well, here's the thing. When you're serving the Lord and when you're going the opposite way as the adversary, the enemy, the devil, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, he's going to come against you. Sometimes this world, just being a fallen place with fallen people, comes against you. But the thing about it, we've already read out of Isaiah, something else we can get from the book of Isaiah, is that weapons will be formed against you, but they will not prosper. That's what makes it a good fight. That's why Paul didn't just say, fight the fight. He said, fight the good fight. Every married couple, you know that the only kind of good fight is the one you win. That's the only time you feel good after the fight. I won that one. But I know you guys are Christians, just like me, so there's no fighting. There's no fighting or arguing in our marriages, right? No, not anymore. Not anymore, come on. Oh my gosh, I just saw who said that. All right. Fight the good fight. It is a good fight because you are the predetermined winner of this fight because of Jesus. Because of that zero point energy source within you, you are the predetermined winner. And unlike any kind of uh, strife or stress within your relationships, this fight is never against flesh and blood. We're going to get to that. You've been given every bit of victory every bit of power and every bit of authority over every spirit, principality, and power out there. And that's good news. That is good, good news. That means that if you don't quit this fight, you win. Paul even said at one point, when all that's done is done, remain standing. When you've done everything you can, when you don't know what else to do, when you don't know what else to say, when you don't know what else you could do, just stay standing. Because if you don't quit, you win. We're going to read today and close this series out with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 is where we're going to be hanging out. You know this uh, is because it's about the armor of God. That's how we're closing this out. I'm going to read this uh, passage here from the New Living Translation. A final word. Be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Side note, in the past few months, if you have considered anything made of flesh and blood your enemy, you're fighting the wrong fight. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places, even if a person made of flesh and blood is coming against you, that person is not necessarily your enemy as much as the spirit, the powers, the principalities that are operating through them. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. We're gonna have a, a, a language 
lesson here to start this off. The phrase that Paul writes in the very beginning of this passage, a final word. That is a Greek word that an author would put into a passage or an essay or even a book before the final and what he considered the most important part of that book. This is written uh, in the time of the Greek philosopher, meaning these guys would write this philosophy stuff and it would spread as far as it could and they'd be talking about the universe and, and how the stars work and, and how things grow. It was, it was science, right? But it was, it was people's minds were kind of expanding like never before with some of this understanding of the way the world works. And when these guys like Socrates, Galileo would write these essays and they got to the most important part, they would say a final word. Meaning, if you haven't heard anything, hear what I'm about to say. Yeah. So Paul uses that phrase in this book of Ephesians, and this is what he uses that phrase after. In the book of Ephesians, you will read about the election of the saints, how we are set apart from the world. You'll read about the work of God in your life, like we just talked about. You'll read about the adoption of us as sons and daughters of God, of God. The sealing of the Holy Spirit in our life, the earnestness of the Holy Spirit, the power of God available to every believer. Grace, there is so much about grace in Ephesians. Ephesians is where we get the teaching of the five-fold ministry gifts. Ephesians talks about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And for day-to-day for -day instruction, it talks about how to get along with other believers. It talks about relationship between believers and the world, how should we relate to the world as believers? Ephesians talks about the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children, even employers and employees. And after all of that, Paul says, if you haven't heard anything else, then just pay attention now to this last thing and the most important thing I'm gonna say. Boy, that's good. That's really good. That means pay attention. That's why we're closing with this. He talks about the armor of God, and, and, and also, he talks about why that armor isn't physical armor. I mean, God is able to do whatever he wants. At, upon salvation, if he wanted to, he could give us a physical set of armor for us to just put on if he wanted to. But the first thing about this armor is it's not physical. Why? Because he wants to make sure we know our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against anybody who could possibly penetrate a physical armor. From the very beginning here, he's saying, first of all, don't forget, when you're faced with a battle, when a weapon is formed against you, when things are, are not going your way, remember that there is an armor on the inside of you that you can put on. He does say put it on. So there is a way we can take this gift that the Lord has already given us and apply it to our lives. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna go over each of the six pieces of armor and how we put those on. Here's the first thing I wanna point out. Four of the six are defensive pieces of equipment, right? The sword and ironically, the shoes of peace are the only offensive weapons, meaning the only weapons that you could use for attack, but a majority of this is about defense. A majority of this is about guarding what's on the inside, your thoughts, your heart, not allowing the enemy 
to penetrate and attack you by letting something in that has no place being in your life. To me, that's lesson number one. Uh, it goes along with what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he said, renew your mind, right? I mean, uh, some of the greats and the heroes of our faith have talked about this, and they've said that the battlefield, the war is over. The only battlefield that still exists is right here in your mind. And that's true. We have to learn to guard our hearts and our minds from so much. The, the world is so messed up, and everywhere we go, we, we come into contact with people who don't have the same relationship with Jesus as you. Negativity and lies from the enemy and doubt and unbelief will attack every one of us every day just by stepping outside our front door. Some of us, probably all of us to some degree, already getting attacked with that doubt and unbelief, negativity lies, put it in there on purpose. Sometimes we don't realize it's on purpose, but we put it in there on our own when we're getting it from everywhere, even without us trying. So what this armor does is it begins to shore up, not even just attacks uh, from, from the outside in. Man, putting this armor on even stops us from going out and letting thoughts, lies, unbelief, and doubts enter our lives. And we're going to get to that, how we do it, what it looks like. There's six pieces of armor, and, and there's one that's the most important. We're going to talk about that one last. Just like Paul says, if you haven't heard anything else, hear this. We're going to talk about that belt of truth last. I'm going to go ahead and tell you why it's the most important, though. Every piece of armor Paul is actually using for this metaphor, uh, Roman armor. That's what he would have been familiar with. That's what he was talking about. And if you could see a set of Roman armor up here, the belt held it all together. The loins girt about with truth held the whole thing together. It's very important. Underwear is very important. Uh, one time, here's one of my side note stories. Okay, we'll get right back to the message. It's like a commercial break. Have you ever had that dream where you're in a group of people and all of a sudden you're like in your underwear? Nothing you can do about it, right? Everybody's had that dream. It was fifth grade. You ready? It was fifth grade and I went on a field trip for the first time by myself to Washington, D.C. My mom didn't go with me, but she did give me $40 for a souvenir. And so on the day one of this field trip, I went to the gift shop and saw this really cool, what I thought was a pair of plaid shorts and I bought them and I put them on that morning and I was on the bus going to the Capitol and my friend Brandon said, you wearing underwear? <laughs> and I said, it's a weird question, man. But yes, I'm wearing underwear. He goes, no, I mean, are those underwear? And I said, no, they're shorts. And he goes, no, those are underwear. <laughs> it was a pair of boxers. And I was on the bus with my class wearing a pair of boxers and a t-shirt and I was in my underwear uh, in front of everybody, and we were traveling for the day. I met a senator, I shook his hand, and didn't have any pants on. It was horrible. I still have nightmares about that one. And also, a bird pooped on my head that day. That was a really bad day. 
It was a rough one. If you can get through that, though, you're a pretty well-adjusted human. <laughs> All right, that was a side note. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I, I, I needed to tell you that. I needed to get it off my chest. <laughs> Back to the armor. It all hinges on the underwear. It all hinges on the loins girt about with truth. It is the most important piece. But we're going to start here. I want to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. Remember, Paul says, put this armor on. Here's the first thing you have to know about, bre- uh, about righteousness. It's never your own. It's never your own as a believer. Our own righteousness, Paul said it himself, is like filthy rags. Jesus came and lived a righteous life for us. And when we say yes to him, his righteousness is then imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how do we put on the righteousness of Jesus? It's already been applied to our life. I'm telling you, if we and as we become more aware of his righteousness and less self-centered way of looking at life, it's all about me, what I can do, it's about how good I can be. When we put away that self-centered way of thinking and we look to Jesus, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean and how does that work? Well, Hebrews 12.1 says, looking to Jesus, it says, let us lay aside the sin that so easily besets us by looking to Jesus. So many times in life, we're dealing with things, lifestyles, habits, sins, and we think, in my own strength, I'm just going to stop this, and then I'll be righteous like Jesus. But the truth is, and Paul tells us here in the book of Hebrews, that the way to lay that stuff aside is to look to Jesus, to remember and to thank him that it is your righteousness and your righteousness alone that puts me in right standing with God. It is your righteousness and your righteousness alone that makes me right with you, that, that leads me to a place of victory. It is not about us. It is not about how good we can be, just like it's not how, about how bad we can be. It is about how good Jesus was. I mentioned that blood that the Hebrew people put over their doorposts on the day of Passover. The angel of death wasn't examining the people. He just had to look for the blood. And when he saw the blood, he passed over. And man, that is the exact picture of what the blood of Jesus does in our life. It is not about us. It is not about how good we are. It is about him. And as we look to Jesus, we apply the knowledge of that righteousness in our life. And I'm telling you, you're gonna start acting more like him on accident than you ever did on purpose. Man, when you look to somebody, when you hang out with somebody, you know you start picking up their mannerisms. We do it in the natural. I mean, I know people that, that spouses, you know, that, that you start to talk like each other. You start to use the same phrases. Friends start to dress alike. Use the same phrase. I know people that, you ever seen those people that like, they look just like their pet? They can hold their pet up and you're like, that's absolutely your pet. I don't care who you're hanging out with. You become more and more like the people you hang out with on accident. Why don't we think the same thing is true with Jesus? Right? Why wouldn't we just naturally think that? Well, we got a lot of people out there peddling this religion that we got to be better and do better. 
You gotta be better and do better. Well, man, if you read in the book of Galatians, just read Galatians this week because Paul flat out writes in Galatians over and over again, if you're trying to live by the law, you will fail. It is by grace and grace alone. It is the righteousness of Jesus that we look to. How about our feet? That's the first thing. That's how we put on righteousness. The blessed prayer of righteousness, we, we look to Jesus. How do we put on the shoes of peace? That's how we could call it very simply. The feet shod with the preparation or the readiness of the gospel. Man, the way you put on the shoes of peace is by making a choice to remain in peace. Lisa and I always say this very simple phrase to each other. It's something we try to live by, no strife for no reason. James 3.16 says that where there's envy and strife, there's confusion and every evil work. If you wonder why the enemy has any place in your life, if you're wondering why, 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 is, why does it seem like he's just able to come in and steal and kill and destroy, how am I letting the enemy in? Well, if you got strife in your life, that's an open door right there. If you live envious, if you spend all your time, you know, looking at the people on Instagram, wishing that was you, or, or just, man, I wish my life was that perfect, that's envy. And that's an open door to letting the enemy in. You have to make the choice to walk in peace. One third of the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. So one third of the kingdom is peace. I love, again, Paul's talking about the Roman armor here. I mentioned this a Two weeks ago, so I'm just going to mention it very quickly. Uh, but if you didn't hear it two weeks ago, the shoes of peace, the reason that's one of the offensive weapons is because on Roman armor, the shoes actually had a two-inch spike on the bottom. And after the Roman army would win a battle, Romans 16:20 says the God of peace will crush Satan shortly. That's not a time period. Satan has been crushed. That word shortly is a military term. And the commander of the army, after a battle was won, would give them the command march shortly. And the army would march high-stepping across the field. And any of the enemies that were left living, they would drive that two-inch spike, kind of graphic, but through their heads to finish the job. The shoes of the peace. Have, you have the word in your hand. You have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And remember, this whole series has been about getting to know and how there's no replacement for the word. Knowing the word and choosing peace yeah. in every situation is literally driving a spike through the head of the enemy that just can't help but run his mouth, talk, and try to lie to you. But if you don't get into strife, you apply the shoes, the boots, of the readiness of the gospel, of peace. It's a good word. And even though they're called the shoes of peace, they are offensive. What? 100%. Not offensive, offensive, like a sport, you know, defense and offense. I keep on wondering if I'm saying that. I'm like, I think they're kind of pronounced the same. Offensive. Offensive. You, you get it. The shield of faith. Devon already said this, but we are given the measure of faith. That's from Romans 12, 3. We are every believer given the measure of faith. You got all you need on the inside. I like to say it this way. Some people, uh, you, you know, will, will, will 
kind of have this idea if I had the faith like this person had or if my faith was this strong or if my faith, if I had as much faith as this person, I'd be able to do this. You got the same amount of faith as this person. It, it, it's really, that's a whole other message, but it's really our belief or unbelief that gets that faith moving. I like to say it like this, just like a baby is born with every bit of muscle they'll ever need, and it's you know how they grow, how they work those muscles out, is how strong those muscles become. You got all the faith you ever need. You got all the faith you could ever want. Devon already talked about it. The shield of faith, one of the ways that faith works, and the, well, the way faith works and moves is through hope. Man, this is something else from... Uh, Hebrews, I believe it's, well, I might have the reference down here in a second, but what we know uh, from Hebrews is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. In other words, when we begin to hope, faith takes that hope and turns it into substance. Hope is just something that's on the inside. Hope is an internal thing. It's a thought. It's the opposite of worry, right? Worry is picturing negative outcomes, whereas hope is picturing positive outcomes. Faith can also take your worry and make it real. But as a believer, we have this awesome benefit that faith takes what we are hoping for and turns it into substance. How does that work? Well, in Ephesians 1.18, Paul talks about the eyes of our understanding. It's really the, a fancy way of saying your imagination. But he says, your imagination being enlightened, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints. In other words, that's some fancy language to say, get your hopes up. God has called you to some great stuff. Don't sit there and worry about never being able to do it. Sit there and picture yourself doing the greatest things you know you're called to do. Picture it, imagine it, dream about it. Instead of using your imagination for the negative and for worry, lay in bed at night and just think about all the good stuff. If y'all been at our church for any length of time, you know the thing I hate the most is that phrase, don't get your hopes up. And people live by it. People live by it. I'm not gonna get my hopes up so I won't be disappointed. Man, I'm sorry, they must not know the same Savior I know. Get your hopes up. It's actually how your faith moves. Come on. Hope is what directs your faith. If faith is the air condition cooling this down, hope is the thermostat that's telling it what to do. If faith is the car that brought you here, hope is the gasoline that powered it. They work hand in hand, and if the enemy can trick you into being not hopeful, if the enemy can trick you into worry, then it's stopping your faith from moving. It's stopping your faith from reaching on the inside and saying, that's what we're hoping for. That's where we're headed. And when Paul talks about the shield of faith, he says, the fiery darts just fall off. It's something about faith getting us moving. It's like... Uh, We'll have another nerd reference. It's like Star Wars stormtroopers that they shot like something like 600,000 times in those movies and never hit anything. I just think the enemy's bad at hitting a moving target. When your faith is moving you, it's like they can't hit a moving target. And if for some reason they hit a moving target, Paul says those fiery darts fall right off. It's called the shield of faith. When you are operating, when your hope is way up and your faith is moving your life in the direction that hope is directing it, 
the enemy who's very real and comes to steal, kill, and destroy will not be able to put any type of fiery dart together that can penetrate that shield of faith. We've gone through three. The helmet of salvation. And the minute you say yes to Jesus, you are a new creation. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the son of God, that he is Lord. You are a new creation. It is a done deal. Sealed 100%. So putting on the helmet of salvation, let me tell you what that looks like. It looks like on purpose coming into agreement with your salvation. So what does that mean? I mean, in a nutshell, you could say it this way, like you're saved, act like it. You're saved. Make choices from that victory instead of trying to get some victory you've already got, which is striving, or making decisions that go directly against who you are in Christ. I'm talking about making decisions based on who you are in Jesus. Maybe that means something as simple as, I'm not gonna watch this television show because of who I am in Christ. I'm not gonna go watch this movie because of who I am in Christ. I know fear entered my life through a stupid movie when I was younger and had a grip on me for almost a decade. Had I thought to myself as a, I don't know, eight or nine year old kid, that's not too young. I don't wanna watch this. I'm not gonna let this into my life. I've literally, Jesus said, don't be afraid. I'm not gonna let this in. I'm talking about you might need to remove yourself from certain conversations because you are saved. You might want to remove yourself from some relationships because you're saved. You might want to choose love over anything else because you're saved. We could stop right there. You might want to choose kindness even over correction. Make choices based on your salvation. Instead of choosing isolation when things aren't going your way. Instead of choosing isolation when you feel an attack from maybe depression or sorrow or sadness. Remember that you're saved and you have a fellowship and a community that wants to lift you up, not tear you down. And choose community over isolation. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul quotes the Old Testament. And he says, who can understand these things? And then he adds, as a New Testament believer, which that means you and me are in the same boat. He says, we can because we have the mind of Christ. If you think exactly like the world, then you're not coming into agreement with the mind of Christ. When the world says be afraid, and you are, you're not operating in the mind of Christ. When the world says things are falling apart and you get anxious, you're not operating in the mind of Christ. When the world says be angry, or when Facebook says be angry, 
and you get angry, you're not operating in the mind of Christ. When a group of people says this group of people are your enemy and you say, oh yeah, they are. Or remember, as a believer, your fight's not against flesh and blood and you're not operating in the mind of Christ. You have it, you also have to choose to operate from it. And there's a lot of choices that would change in my life and in your life as we remember who we are in the spirit. Uh, I thought about doing this this week, and I might do it actually, but I'm going to get a sticker, and it's going to be a mirror, and I'm going to put a mirror on the cover of my Bible. We talk about this in here so much, but James says that this is our spiritual mirror, that if we need a reminder of who we are, then you got to open this and read it, just like if you want to remember what you look like, you got to go stand in front of the mirror. I'm going to put a mirror on the cover of my Bible so that I just have a constant reminder, this is who I really am. I'm not this flesh and blood. I'm not the person that does feel anxious when I don't catch it and remember who I am in the spirit. That's my flesh. That's not me. As Devon said, the natural, he said, I'm ordinary. That's not in agreement with who we are on the inside. We just got to remember and then our choices begin to line up more and more right. with that helmet of salvation. How many have we been through? Is that four? That's four. Sword of the Spirit, the fifth one. The second offensive weapon. Weapon. Am I saying it? Okay, I don't know. Sometimes I listen back to the message and I'm like, why do I say that word so weird? But the sword of the spirit. It's a weapon. It's meant for offense. And it is 100% the spirit, which is the word. We talked about this last week, but in Hebrews 4.12, Paul says the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And again, go back to last week if you want more information on it, but that word two-edged means two-tongued. In other words, it means this word existed before the beginning of time it was spoken. And then as we get to know it and we speak it out, it becomes two-tongued, two-mouthed. It's been spoken by God. It's been spoken by us. And it divides flesh from spirit. It divides life from death. As we declare it, our weapon is literally the word of God. And let me tell you, if it is not a part of your life, then you're leaving your sword in its sheath and not picking it up and fighting that fight when the enemy comes against you. James 4, 7 says, when we submit to God and resist the devil, he flees from us. This is how you resist the devil. He lies, you tell him the truth. He lies, forget about him. He lies, you just speak the truth. You just tell yourself the truth. The sword of the spirit is your word. It is, well, the word. It's you speaking the word. That's these five pieces. Now I want to talk about this. The loins girt about with truth. The belt of truth. Every one of these pieces of armor hinged on the breastplate of Uh, of the Roman armor would actually attach to it to hold it steady. The shoes would even 
come up and attach to it. Uh, the, the sword would hang on it, a shield could hang on it, and even there was a place on the armor for your helmet if you weren't wearing it to hang on that belt of truth. It again goes back to the word. Yes. Let God be true and every man a liar. If what I'm seeing with my eyes does not line up with the word, then you know what I have to do as a believer? Choose to believe over the word. Choose to believe the word over what I'm seeing with my physical eyes. And to the world, that seems crazy. And for some reason, to some Christians, that seems crazy. But it's really not fake it till you make it. It's not like a name it and claim it thing. It's an actual choice to say maybe what I'm seeing isn't lined up with what the word says, but I'm still going to believe the word. It's like what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They said, our God is well able to save us. And if not, we still won't bow down. Will you say that I'm going to believe this over anything else. And even if it comes down to my last moment and things look different, I'm still going to believe this. And if I never see it, this is still true. But we have a promise that says we will see his goodness in the land of the living. And I believe it with all my heart. Just like the belt of truth, the central piece of the armor, this thing that everything hinges on, this has got to be the central part of our life and our relationship with Jesus. Everything hinges on the word. We've been talking about it for three weeks, but there is no replacement for the word. I mean, great, amazing, powerful prayer time is not a replacement for the word. Deep moments of worship, even like this morning when we were just worshiping together and it was such an amazing atmosphere and it honored the Lord, even that is no replacement for the word. You've heard me say it so much over the last three weeks. I just want you to get it so much. This has to be a part of your life. It has to be it because everything hinges on it. Every promise God made, every piece of this armor that Paul said put on hinges on the word. When the word of God has a central place in your life, righteousness covers you and you're so aware of it just like that breastplate. When God's word has a central place in your life and it gets in your head when it's in your heart, it gives you that word you need in the very moment that's just like a sword and it cuts and it attacks. And when the enemy's lying, because you know the word, you speak the truth and you walk in victory. When his word dominates your thinking, you always walk in that peace. The shoes of peace become a part of every step you take when this dominates your thinking over anything the world will tell you to think about. When his word becomes your standard, when it is the part of your life, you won't be able to help but have the highest hopes you've ever had. And when you get hopey, your faith has something to follow. Your faith has something to grab onto and say, hey, I'm going to take that and turn it into something made of substance. Yes. If it wasn't true, it wouldn't be in here. And there's too many believers that have learned to put hope away. My prayer is that you begin to hope more than ever. Write out a vision, write out a goal. Sit down and, and, and put some pen to paper 
Hang it on your fridge. Not to taunt you, to give you something to look towards. God wants you to get there more than you want to get there. That's six pieces of armor. They all hinge on the belt of truth. My dad would always say this, so I'm going to say it too as we close. There is one more part. There is a seventh part. Uh, it's in Ephesians 6, 18. It's the last thing he actually says in the entire uh, passage about the armor of God. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer is the last part of that armor. Prayer is a powerful weapon. You've heard me say this a few times that it, when we really have the word as a part of our life, our prayer time becomes electrified like never before. We talked about that all last week, so go back and listen to last week's message if you need to. But knowing the word just energizes your prayer time and your worship time like never before. And when you are constantly and consistently in fellowship with God through prayer, and that doesn't just mean speaking, right? It doesn't even just mean speaking and listening. I mean, we can live a lifestyle of prayer by being constantly aware of who we are, constantly aware of what God is saying and doing. You don't have to be on your knees locked in a closet somewhere in a dark room for that to be prayer. I mean, we can, you can be in fellowship and communion with God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when you are, it is like that final piece of armor it's like just being in constant communication with the commander that knows exactly what to do to get where you're going. But you have a powerful, powerful promise in the armor of God that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. So my encouragement is go home and read more about it. I hope you wrote some stuff down today because, again, it's not... Just an automatic. Paul says you have to put this armor on. You have to make some choices. It's automatically yours. It's like you got the armor standing over in the corner of a room and you just choose not to put that on that day. Go out to battle without it. But let me tell you, it's not like the armor that Saul tried to give David either that, was, that didn't fit him. This is... 100% made exactly for you for the exact thing you need in that moment. You have to put it on. You already have the victory. You already got all these amazing defensive weapons. When something comes against you, man, make the choice. Thank you, Jesus. Let's all stand together.